You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon reading today is Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, Genesis chapter 2. Thank you, Sarah, for reading that. And I'm going to just list off uh, some words, two categories of words. And you tell me which one, just reflect on these words, which ones would be, which category of words seems to describe uh, the condition of your life and soul right now. Uh, Category number one, busy, stressed, burdened, overwhelmed, maxed, tired, weary. That's category number one. Category number two, tranquil, peaceful, rested, contented, still, relaxed. So that's category one. Category two. So if you just think through just the general disposition of your heart, your soul, your daily, even the condition you're walking into this room, which one of those two categories would you say best describes you most resonate with, best describes your life? Uh, there was a woman who came from another culture to our American culture, and, uh, and uh, this is sort of her experience. She began to introduce herself as busy because as she talked and met with Americans, it seemed like very early in the conversation, people would talk about how busy and stressed they are. And so she began to think that that actually was part of the American greeting, was to say how busy you are. And, uh, and, and she, she wouldn't be wrong. Isn't that how most of your conversations go? How are things going? Oh, we're just, just really busy, just really maxed. And it seems like true rest seems elusive for most Americans. One in seven adults, 14%, set aside a day a week for rest. Only 14% of Americans actually have an actual day of rest. And on that one day of of rest, when you ask people what they do, those 14% who do, or uh, most of them, four in ten, would say that they do more work. Might be enjoyable work that they like, a hobby. But nearly four in ten also say they do non-enjoyable work work around the yard or the house or whatever, like work that needs to be done. So even those of us who take a day off, we spend that day laboring. We just don't get paid for it, right? We're just a very busy, busy people. Only one in five say they don't do any work at all on their day of rest. A real sense of rest and contentedness and stillness and relaxation. And I just wonder, is the way that we do life really the way that it was intended to be? Were we intended by God to be stressed and maxed and tired all the time? We, we seem to think that there's some virtue in the, in the fact that we're burning the candle at both ends. And is that what God intended when he created us in this world, when he created at the very beginning? And we've been walking through God's intention in Genesis chapter 1. It took us five sermons to get out of chapter 1. We're now in chapter 2. We finally made it into chapter 2. And we covered this portion a little bit a few weeks ago, but just as I was thinking about how this series is progressing, I thought it would be so easy for us to just sort of hand wave these three verses going, yeah, 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 and move on to the other stuff. 
But I was just thinking that even for the sake of my own soul and for the sake of your souls, we ought to spend some time at least one Sunday looking deeply at these three verses of the seventh day. And actually, while we're out of chapter one, finally, after five sermons, this really should be part of chapter one. So whoever divided the Bible, a guy in the 16th century who suggested the divisions in the Bible, those weren't there from God. Your chapters and verses were not there in the original. Those were put in later to help you navigate the scriptures. Very helpful, but they're not inspired. And these first three verses really should be part of chapter one. They really close out this opening narrative of how God made the world. And just by way of review, our very very first message came on February 7th with Genesis 1-1, the God who made everything. And we realize that the Bible opens with this idea that God exists. And he is the only thing that exists until he creates everything else that does exist. And we looked about who God is. The Bible is about God. He is the opening character. He is the main character from beginning to end. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about God and about what he's doing and not as much about what we're doing. The Bible is about God. And then secondly, on February 14th, we looked at Genesis 1 through 2-3, part of our text today, and we looked at the God who speaks, and we looked at the, the six days of creation, the forming days and the filling days, and that God speaks, and he sees, and he evaluates, and we learn a lot about God, and we learn a lot about the creation of the world, creation of humanity, this whole realm of existence that we inhabit. On February 21st, we looked at Genesis 1, 26 and 28, the God who is imaged, and we looked at how God has made humanity in his own image. And there's some distinctiveness about the human creature that is different from the rest of creation and has a special responsibility. And you can go back and listen to that message. And then we looked at the God who commissions. That God has given humanity a task to image him in the world. He's given them a blessing and a job to do. That his command and his blessing are the same thing. Ever since the fall, we have wanted to separate God's blessing and his command, not realizing that his commands are a blessing to us, And that his blessings always come with transformation. He wants us to respond to his blessings in certain ways. And so the God who commissions, his blessings and his commands are the same things. And we need to see that as such. That what God asks of us and what he blesses us with are one and the same. We're going to see that again in the future of our series of how that gets corrupted. And then Justin did a great job of kind of walking us through the scripture and showing us how God is a God of kingdom and covenant. And that we understand our Bibles better when we understand that the Bible is fundamentally about a king, God the king, the realm and his subjects, and how the whole Bible really can be summarized up in kingdom and covenant. And so, bottom line, you were made by God, and you were made for God. That's where we've been so far, and if you were to walk away with one thing, it was like you were made by God, and you are made for God. And that's going to be at the heart of our text here today, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, is in many ways the big exclamation point at the end of God's creative work. He has done making his, his, his realm. He's formed the earth and the universe, and now he has filled it. And now we get this exclamation point as we have this seventh day where God rests. And it tells us so many things about God. It tells us so many things about who we're intended to be. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this in kind of four movements, okay? We're going to look at God first in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Then we're going to look at the implications, how what God does on this seventh day is then developed throughout Scripture. So we'll look at Israel, and then thirdly, we'll look at Jesus, and lastly, we're going to look at you. You're going to come last today. God, Israel, Jesus, you. What does the implication of this seventh day rest, this exclamation point where God does something entirely different than he's done on any of the other six days, 
the capstone of his creation. What does this mean about God? What does this mean for Israel? How do they walk this out? How does Jesus fulfill this? And then what it means for you. That's the roadmap for our time together, okay? So first, let's talk about God, the king who rests. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. Verse 1 is really a parallel with chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. You see that? So now we've got the bookends here of God's creative work. In six days, he formed and filled the earth. And he has filled it, all the hosts of them. They're now inhabited with animate creatures. It's now a functioning universe, a functioning ecosystem. And God's creative work is done. Verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we have the seventh day and the seventh day is so unique. It is an exclamation point. It is, if you were to take, if you were to look at like a, like a, like a diamond engagement ring, you often have kind of the accent diamonds and then you got the center diamond and, and it's, it's a parallel on each side. You got three accent diamonds, day one, Day four, day five, or day two, day five, day three, day six, they match up and then in the center with no parallel, with no matching day is this day seven. It's the solitaire. It's, the, it's, it's, it's everything that the days of creation are pointing to this big diamond where God, the king, finishes his constructive work and sits on his throne and enjoys it. This has got kingdom language. He, the king has done his battle, he has done his work, and now he sits in great pleasure over his kingdom. He has finished his work. This is, this is God-like language, that the temple has been built, and now the God takes up residence in his temple. And so we've got kingly language. We've got construction language. We've got this finishing of this realm where God is going to commune with his people, and he's got his image bearers. And he has just commissioned them to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's given them a job to do, but before they can do their job, they need to just sit for a day and enjoy their king. God doesn't need their help on any of this, but he grants them a job to do. He blesses them. But before we do, just so you get it right, day of rest, before you do anything, just commune with your God, commune with your king, enjoy him. There will be other days to do work, but this first day after the commission, after God made humanity, is just a day to enjoy God. Just a day for his creation to be enjoyed, for God to enjoy his own creation. So we already see in this that this is such a unique day. The Moses in this first chapter is doing some really strategic things. He, every word is carefully chosen. The poetry is magnificent. The, the, the intention of each word as you see days and God speaking and everything is perfect. And here we have in day 10 and the author is very much showing you that this day is unique and you are to pay attention to this seventh day um, instruction here. The lines of verse 2 and the first line of 3 in the Hebrew are all seven words long. And at the very center of each one of those words is the word seventh day. And so this is arranged in its original language with the emphatic threefold, God is holy, holy, holy. And when you, do, when you have a triad like that in Hebrew, it means to the nth degree. Something is holy, means it's holy. If you say something's holy, holy, you say, you're saying that it's very holy. When you're saying something is holy, 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 you're saying that it is supremely holy. 
So for in three lines, each seven words long, talking about a seventh day and emphasizing that on the seventh day God rests, means that God, God has something special intended, specially intended for this seventh day. There is a special significance that we're meant to draw out that the author is emphasizing that there is something eternal, permanent, and supreme that's being communicated in this seventh day. And we want to just unpack that today. There's no parallel day. Day seven stands alone. All the others have a parallel. Um, you have a beautiful poetry that shows that this is a special day. This day is described as blessed. God blesses this day. So, you know, he blesses humans. He even blesses the fish of the sea. But this is the only time where you have a, like a time period. You have like a, like a, um, a, a realm that's blessed. You have a, a, a space in time that's blessed. That, that's unique. God blesses this particular time as being set apart. It's holy, Kadesh, sacred, holy, set apart. There's something special about this day, something set apart, something um, pure and holy and um, um, different on this day. And then notice that the day does not end with any morning or evening. There is something timeless about this day. There is something about this being an eternal day. Because all the other days have, there was morning and there was evening, the sixth day. But the seventh day has no end. It is a permanent reality. So there's all kinds of theological things that are packed into this. All, a bunch of Easter eggs that we're going to see show up throughout the scriptures. Is this idea that this seventh day is blessed by God. It is holy to God and it is timeless. And what it tells us is that the sixth day is not the final day of cre of, uh, in the week. The seventh day is. Man is not the point of creation. God's rest and enjoyment of his creation is the point. The destination is not us and how great we are and what we can accomplish for God. The end game of all of creation is is that God would get glory from what he's made. That's the end game. We're a means to that end, and a glorious means to that end. So I want you to think about two major takeaways right here. I think they pop up on the bottom of the screen. Example and promise. Isn't this fascinating? God is taking rest on day seven, but God is not tired. If someone who is, you know, someone who's infinite can't get tired, right? God is infinite and he's not resting because he's tired. He's resting because he is in some sense, he's communicating all kinds of theological things here, but he's also in some ways in solidarity with his creation saying, hey, when you rest, I want you to be like me. So I'm going to do something that I don't need to do, but you need to do in order that you may know that when you do it, I'm pleased with that. Does it make sense? God is so kind here to do something he doesn't have to do in order to show you that he's in solidarity with his creatures. And that when his creatures rest, yes, you image me, not just in your work, your day six commission work, but in your rest, you'll be like me because I was willing to rest in order that you may know how to image me. Isn't that kind of God? To in some sense stoop to this level of like, actually taking rest in and of himself so that we might know that when we rest, we are imaging him. He, he, he's made himself an example for us that in both our work and our rest, we are to image him. And then secondly is promise. That there is the point of creation, the, the direction, the intention of God 
is to bring you, to bring all of humanity, to bring all the world into relationship with himself. God knows that the fall is going to happen. And pre-fall, the point was not get the job done for God. That's part of the commission. But the point is, is enjoy God. He doesn't need you. You need him. And the seventh day was to show right out of the gate that that's where it's going. And that that's where all of human history is going is a right relationship with God. So we've got to balance this work that God gives in Genesis 1 with the rest that he also sets apart for us. And there's a promise in that, that God is going to bring all things into eternal rest with himself. There's a promise that this is where it's going and it's going to be eternal. It will have no end. God's rest will have no end. There will be no morning or evening. It will have no end. And so right in these short little three verses, that's easy to kind of just, yeah, yeah, yeah. A day off, we get it, okay. No, no, no. God is doing something magnificent here. And he is trying to get our attention here to tell us a little bit about who we are and who he is and where we're going, where God is going to take his creation. So let's look at how this then is developed, this seventh day rest is developed in the people of Israel. Okay, so in your Old Testament, this idea of Sabbath, the word rest, Sabbath, and seven are all from the same root Hebrew word. They, they all overlap. So those three words in our English word all come from the same root in Hebrew. Seven, Sabbath, rest. All are interconnected in this. And so when we talk about Sabbath, we're talking both about the seventh and rest and, and this ordinance of the Sabbath. So let's look at Israel in Exodus chapter 20. The idea of the seventh day Sabbath doesn't show up again at all in the book of Genesis. You don't see it again. It's merely this thing God does at creation. He finishes his creative work. He's put all the energy into the universe that he's going to put. The second law or first law of thermodynamics talks about that, right? That energy just changes forms. God has put all of the energy that the universe needs in there and he's resting. He's still upholding it. He's still working in the sense that he is upholding the laws of the universe. But he has done his creative work and he's resting. This doesn't appear again until Exodus chapter 20 where the people have been brought out of Egypt. God's people that he called through, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Changed Jacob's name to Israel and says through this family I'm going to bring redemption. I'm going to bring the promise through this family. So the whole world should watch this family because they're going to be distinct and different and the redemption is going to come through them. The Savior is going to come through them. And so these Israelite people are captive for 400 years in Egypt crying out to God for deliverance and he miraculously does it through the work of Moses. And what he does is he brings these people out into the desert and they gather around the mountain and they're going to receive a new covenant from God. And what happens is, is that they are given some commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. I think this is on the screen here. And watch, look, look at what it says here. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember what God did? And how on that seventh day was set apart for something significant, a non-work day? I want you to embody that to the world. I want you to model to, 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 to fulfill that example, I want you to do that. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourner who is within the gates. For, for verse 11, here's the why. Here's the why of the command. Why, why, why do we do this? For, in six days, 
The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So you, as God's people, are to be marked by, one of the distinguishing marks of God's people is that they're going to rest, like God rests. They're going to embrace this seventh-day Sabbath. And part of what they're meant to do on that day is reflect on the creative power of God. Remember his creative power. Remember his intention for the universe. Remember that he is in charge and you are not. And on this day, you don't do work to show that you are entirely dependent upon him. And that as his people, you're going to do the the weird thing of not laboring. You're going to trust your existence on that day to that God and you're going to give him your undivided attention, right? It's to remember that you're a creature that needs rest. He's the creator that doesn't need rest but did rest so that you might engage in imaging him in that way. It's marvelous. It's a marvelous command. Be creator-minded one day a week. Remember your creatureliness. Remember his creatorness and marvel at the handiwork and sovereignty of God. Keep it holy. This is a way to mimic, image, and acknowledge and honor your God. If you move to Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy just means second law. So everything you read in Deuteronomy is essentially a repeat of what you have earlier. People of Israel are about to enter the land after 40 years of discipline from God, and Moses gives a long sermon recounting the covenant. So Deuteronomy, second law, is just a rehash before you go into the land. Remember what God is expecting of you as his redeemed, promised people. And here we have a repetition of this commandment again, this Sabbath day commandment, but it's a little bit different. There's a, a second aspect that is supposed to mark this seventh day rest, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Look at the comprehensiveness of this. We saw this in the first one too. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox for your donkey or and any of your livestock for the sojourner or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male and servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So it's not just you and you can exploit other people. You can make other people do work, keep the business running. No, 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 this is for everybody. And even if you're not part of the Israel thing, you get the benefits of the fact that God gives a day off right here. So I just find that fascinating. This is not just a you privately thing, but this is meant to spill over as being a blessing on everybody, including your animals, like all of it. You are at total rest with me, totally dependent on me. And you're not kind of pushing off and trying to secretly sort of work the, the system a little bit and let the non-Israelite people do your work while you take the time off. It's meant to be comprehensive, respect for God. Verse 15, here you go. Here's the why. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So in Exodus 20, we're to remember the creative works of God, right? The creation, that he's God and we're a creator and we are acknowledging that on this day to go, he doesn't need us, we need him, right? The creatorness of God. Here we're to look at the savior, the the redemption-minded. We're to be savior-minded about God, that God delivered us from Egypt. Now think about this. If you're a slave people who have been enslaved for 400 years and you have worked, what? 12 hours a day, hard labor, no days off for centuries. 
slaving under the needy, temperamental Egyptian gods, you come out and you're about to enter a new land and your God commands you to take a day off. Do you see how different that is than any other gods at the time? This God doesn't need us. He's not demanding. He gives us rest. This is a benevolent God, not a demanding God. And remember, on this day, be creator-minded and be savior-minded. Remember that you once had someone that was driving you. You had Egyptian gods that were driving you into the dust. And when one of you died from exhaustion, there was just another one that took your place. Your God is not like that. Your God is not going to grind you into dust. He's giving you a day to remember that. He's a saving God. He's a benevolent God. He's a rescuing God. He's a God that doesn't need you and yet desires you. Nation of slaves coming out and their God says, I command you to rest and reflect. Everything. Everything that you own, everything that you do, acknowledge your God in this way. And he, God takes it another step further. Exodus 23, 10 through 12 tells us that every seven years you take a whole Sabbath year. Can you imagine that? And then every 50th year, the year of Jubilee. So you got the 49th, if it's every seven, you got the 40th, 49th year, no work. Then you got the 50th year, which is a Jubilee. You got two years. Completely given to acknowledging the creator, remembering his saving work, total dependence on him. Where's our income going to come from? I don't know. And it doesn't matter. We're his people. He provides. He doesn't need us. We need him. It's amazing what God calls the Israelite people to do, isn't it? And what that says about God. This is not meant to be a burden. This is meant to be a gift that I have got you. I have got you. So rest. Exodus 31, 12 through 17, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoa. Because it images me, is what he's saying. There is something... There is something wrong you're saying about me if you start breaking this commandment. It says something about your soul and what you trust in. And it says something about me and what kind of God I am. And we can't have that. This is a strong command. Whoever does any work, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Six days you shall, shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of Solomon rest to the whole, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath will be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. And again, it's meant to communicate God's graciousness, God's kindness, God's acknowledgement that these are human creatures. And he says it's a sign between me and you, and it's to distinguish God's people. Can you imagine what the other nations are thinking when a nation just takes a year off? What does that say about them and their God? They really think their God is supreme, and they really think their God is worth their full attention for periods of time both on this seventh-day regular rhythm and then occasionally in these larger ways. So Israel's God is benevolent 
and he is kind. This is what the nations are to see as Israel does this really hard, trusting, like this is a scary thing to do. It's meant to communicate to the world their God is benevolent and kind. He is gracious. Their God is secure. He doesn't need anything from them. Their God is self-sufficient. Their God gives gifts. Their God is considerate. Their God knows the limits of humanity. Their God gives. He's a generous God. Do you see what's being communicated here and how radically weird that would be? How countercultural, how dangerous that is to live that way and to have that kind of trust in God. Fast forward 600, 700 just years and how do you think the people did when it came to honoring God through being a distinct people who rest? They don't do well. You fast forward 600, 700 years. Jeremiah 17, 28. One of the prophets comes to Israel and says, if you do not listen to me speaking for God to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Because it's saying something about your God when you start in, infringing on what I've commanded you to do. You're saying something to the world about who, what you really trust in and who you claim your God is. Ezekiel 20, another prophet, says, Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the countries because they have not obeyed my rules but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths and their eyes were set on their father's idols. So breaking the Sabbath was very much tied with idolatry. It was a, it was a, it was a symptom. It wasn't that keeping Sabbath made them right with God. It just showed that when their relationship with God got wonky, it started to show up in their Sabbath practices. It's like the person who, it's like the husband who all of a sudden stops wearing his wedding ring. Does that make him any less married? No, but it's a sign that something might not be right, right? Okay. It's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's just one of those symptoms that's like, okay, that putting the ring back on doesn't make your marriage better, but it is a sign like, mm, something's up, something's up here, right? And that's how the Sabbath was. Is that when Sabbath started to be not as honored for them, it was an indication that their hearts were beginning to fill with idols. They were beginning to mistrust God. They were beginning to pursue other things. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six says, Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the clean and the unclean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths. So I am profaned among them. This is wild. This is not very American productivity, is it? No, we're talking about a God who's got a totally different category with which he wants his people to be marked by. So I want you to just think of two words here. So if the first two words about God are example and promise, when it comes to God's people in the Old Testament, this idea of Sabbath rest was to be distinctive of the people of God. They just don't do the same earthly calculations the rest of the world does. They just don't. Their God makes a difference in how they do their work and how they arrange their lives and what they trust in. It's distinctive of the people of God that they rest. And then secondly, it's to be a memorial. It's supposed to be a time where you're like, your mind is now free to think about your creator in community. To think of his creative works, to think of his redeeming works. A day, just to commune with your creator, with your brothers and sisters. Sabbath rest was meant to be a distinctive mark of the people of God, and it says something about their God. The God of Israel is not a tyrant. He is not dependent on them. He doesn't need anything from them. He provides everything. He prioritizes relationship over productivity. 
Their weekly rhythm was meant to proclaim something about their God. And it did. Sabbath rhythm and rest was to recall and proclaim the character and work of God. Sabbath keeping didn't make them right with God. But it tended to be the first thing to go when their hearts began to stray from God. It takes tremendous intimacy and trust in God to work hard and to rest hard. Think about that. You all know intuitively how hard this is, how hard it is to rest, right? We all know this. It takes a lot of trust and a lot of discipline to really rest. Israel's heart wandered from God and it showed up in their weekly rhythms and how they related to their labor. That became the way to be able to tell and God disciplined them severely for many things, ultimately idolatry, but it showed up in this way and God's like, this is how I know. This was meant to be a diagnostic. So this distinctive and this memorial, which then brings us to Jesus, the embodiment of true rest. So as we lead up into Jesus, the, the idea of Sabbath controversy with Jesus comes up massively huge. It's all over your, the Gospels, right? Jesus and what he does on the Sabbath is tremendously controversial. It takes up so much of the pages of the gospel is Jesus and the Sabbath, which is why I thought we ought to pause on these three verses in Genesis and then draw that theme all the way through because this is all over the Old Testament and it's all over the gospels and Jesus is the embodiment of true rest. Now here's why the Sabbath is such a big deal with Jesus. So after Israel goes off into uh, exile in Babylon or Assyria in the Northern Kingdom in 722 and then in 586 the Babylonians um, the people are taken off as an act of discipline, at least in part according to this, because they're, they're being unfaithful to the commands of God, including this Sabbath principle, uh, these commands of the Sabbath, among other things. So what happens is, is they come back, Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild things, and it's not as great as it was. The kingdom, the temple, the city is not as great as it was. And they're just, it, it, the, Israel's not as great as it used to be. And then you have these massive empires that flow through the greek empire and then by the time of jesus the roman empire and what you have is that you have the israelite leaders who are going you know what we really want to learn our lesson from the babylonian captivity and so now as we try to make our way not being a world superpower anymore as we're trying to navigate this we really don't want to be disciplined by god again so we're going to get really serious about this sabbath keeping and so they came up with all kinds of documents of how they could make sure that they weren't sent in exile again by God by creating rules to guard the Sabbath. You see what they're doing? So that's what your Pharisees are doing, is that they've had a few centuries and they're now living in this Roman Empire where, man, Pilate and Herod and like, there is all kinds of political, like it's a very tense time. And Israel's thinking, man, if we make God mad, the Romans will come and destroy us. So you gotta have a little bit of compassion for some of the Pharisees is that they just really want, I think, to preserve their nation. And we just know that when we screwed up the Sabbath, we got disciplined by God, so we're gonna be really serious about the Sabbath. And they really essentially went too far the other way and created laws upon laws upon laws because they really didn't wanna do that Babylonian thing again. Does that make sense? So now Jesus comes in and Jesus doesn't play by the rules. Jesus doesn't play by their Sabbath rules. They had made the Sabbath instead of a gift of God, a promise of God, they'd made it a burden. And they'd made it something to inspect people on. So they could get them out because they really didn't want that. So, um, so there's all kinds. Of, it's more complicated than that. But that leads us into, you can understand a little bit, 
why the people are such, make such a big deal about the Sabbath. Like they really don't want to go into exile again. And Jesus is coming in and it's like, man, if we've got this rabbi with this big following and he starts wrecking things, he starts wrecking our system, then we're going to get it. It's a little bit like, okay, well, here's some of the rules that they had made. This is from the Mishnah. There was 39 categories of work prohibited. So they're trying to protect the Sabbath by creating more laws and then really being sticklers on those laws. You could not walk more than a Sabbath day journey, which was measured as Jerusalem to the top of Mount of Olives, about 2,000 feet. So you're counting your steps. Okay, 2,000 feet. I guess wherever you're done, when you get to 1,999, that's it until the next day. Lay down gently. Don't work too hard. Lay down right there. Wait for morning. You could not eat an egg laid on the Sabbath because the chicken did work laying the egg. So we, we, I mean, we're serious. We don't want to go into exile again. We don't want to make God mad again. You cannot throw an object up in the air and catch it. That would be work. If on the Sabbath there's a flea or an insect on you, it must not be removed. That is the same as hunting on the Sabbath. You could not pick up anything that weighed more than two dried figs. So, you're watching football on a Sunday, and you got a bad game on there. You got to find some way to change the channel without picking up that remote, right? Like, so, we make fun of it, but, but do you see that they really are trying to, I think, honor the Sabbath in a way they've gone too far and, and they've forgotten God. Does that make sense? Their history is really significant to them. This Babylonian captivity was ingrained in their minds. We do not want to do that again. And they went too far and they forgot God. And now it became about the rules instead of the relationship with God. When I was in Israel, we were in Nazareth. And a couple friends of mine, we found on the second floor, we found a little bit of Wi-Fi to be able to check some things. And so we're sitting there. And this was on, this was on Friday. And Sabbath starts at sundown at dark. So there was some sort of gathering of some Orthodox Jewish people in like the hotel whatever the big room behind us was. And we're sitting in there in those chairs, checking our email, trying to connect with folks. And they all come piling out, and it's about, I don't know, 30 minutes until sundown. And there's, what they have there is they have an elevator that's the Sabbath elevator. And what happens is that right at sundown, or a little bit before, maybe quite a bit before, that Sabbath elevator stops on every floor automatically so that you don't have to push a button. That would be work. It was so funny, and my heart kind of went out to them. Because you had like 30 guys come rushing out and they worked so hard to get as many of them in that elevator as they could. They couldn't use the other two Gentile elevators. They had to use the Sabbath elevator. And they worked so hard to pack so many in there because no one wanted to wait for it to go all the way up the 14 floors and down. And what was fast, my friend and I were kind of sitting there just sort of like watching this as they pack in there going, mm, that might be more work than pushing the button. Then what was funny is we didn't realize this at the time, but it was on its way up from the second floor. So it closes, and then we wait probably 10 minutes, and then all of a sudden it opens, and they're still there because it, it stops on all the floors on the way down. And we're kind of like, man, should we just offer? Like, we're the Gentiles. We could go push the button for them. <laughs> we're already out anyway. But the idea being is that, I mean, they're serious about this, right? And you kind of get this sense that, yeah, it seems kind of crazy to us, but there's also like, they... This is, this is kind of the setting that Jesus is in. So Jesus comes in and he's pushing the buttons, right? He's, he's going, this is not what the, in, the Sabbath was intended to be. It's a little bit like Jurassic Park. You remember the movie Jurassic Park? Way back in the 1900s, there was a movie that came out about dinosaurs. <laughs> and what happened was, you know, you remember the T-Rex, right? The T-Rex is hunting 
And how do you make sure the T-Rex doesn't eat you? Freeze. The T-Rex can't see you if you don't move, right? So you freeze and blow snot on them. You know, like the whole, you remember from the movie? And it's a little bit like God is like that. Like on the Sabbath, it's like God's like this T-Rex. And if anything moves, it's going to get devoured. Do you see how their, their idea of Sabbath as being this gracious gift of God had become, probably well-intentioned at first, but became a God is a T-Rex. And if we move too much, he's going to devour us. What they were communicating about God had changed. Probably well-intentioned at first, but it had become a corruption. And in walks Jesus. And in John chapter 5, Jesus, there's a paralyzed man. And Jesus walks up on the Sabbath and heals him and tells the man to pick up his mat and walk, go home. And the Pharisees just lose their mind. And you can just imagine, if your God's a T-Rex, you do not want to draw attention by doing too much work on that day. But he still stopped. Like, God's going to get us. And Jesus, this verse 16 of John chapter 5, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. You misunderstand God. God doesn't need rest. You need rest. And God is working, and I'm the son of God. I'm, I'm going to continue to do work on the Sabbath. I'm going to do this kind of work, redemptive work healing work, restorative work. You're so afraid that God is going to come devour you, but, but God permitted charitable work on the Sabbath. Matthew 12, the disciples pluck heads of grain as they walk through a field. They're hungry. And they're walking through the field. They pick some heads of grain and they eat it, which is prohibited work because that's harvesting. And I, this is fascinating. If they're walking through a field, are the Pharisees just kind of like watching with their little notebooks? I just find this kind of fascinating. How do they know that the, that the disciples did this? But verse 6, Matthew 12, 6. They, they call him out on that, going, you're breaking the Sabbath law. The T-Rex is going to eat us. You're moving too much. And Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. All your rules, all of those symbols, the temple, the Sabbath, all of that was to point you to me. And something better than Sabbath, something better than temple is here. And if you had known these things, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God's not like that. Doing acts of mercy on the Sabbath was permitted. There was a hierarchy in the, in the, in the law in the sense that, yeah, certain things. But there's, and he gives instructions like, you would pull your donkey out of the ditch if, you fell, if he fell in on the Sabbath, right? You'd, it's okay. it, the merciful acts are okay. That's not the intention of the Sabbath. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is, listen to this, Lord of the Sabbath. Think about how profound that would be. You want to know who's in charge of Sabbath? Yeah, you're looking at him. You think back to Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, God made the Sabbath, made it holy. Israel was to remember the Creator and the Savior. And Jesus is going, yep, you're looking at him. The one who rested on day seven in creation? Yeah, that was me. It was my idea to make that day holy. And the Israelites who are supposed to take this day to remember their creator, they're supposed to be thinking about me. And the one who led them out of Egypt? Me. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see how this is all kind of interconnected. Mark chapter two, Mark is recording the same story of picking heads of grain and how that was breaking the rules on the Sabbath. Mark 27, 28, Mark includes an extra line 
in this, uh, in this account. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And you're getting it. You're, you're messing it up. It's not that the Sabbath is where God is looking for who he can devour. That's what Satan does. Satan is the one who's looking for someone to devour, right? God is the one who's like, the Sabbath was a gift, not something to be afraid of. It was meant to be a gift, a promise, an example of God. It was to be a distinctive and a memorial. And here we have in Jesus, a couple takeaways, I think these show up on the bottom of the screen, is that the Sabbath, Jesus shows us that the Sabbath was meant to be a gift. You've missed it. You've missed the character of your God. And you've missed the intention of what he wanted you to do with this day of rest and fulfillment. Sabbath isn't a day, it's a person. It's a person. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus reminded them of the original intention of the Sabbath as a gift of grace from their good God. They had turned it into a burden to bear, a stick to heap people with. Jesus not only restores the essential intention of the Sabbath rest, but then fulfills that intention in himself. And think about John 19 in relation to Genesis. Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 2, God, so the creation of the heavens and earth were finished. Let me read that so I get it right. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested. John 19, the seventh day, Friday night, Good Friday. Jesus says it is finished and breathed his last. And on that seventh day, he was in the tomb in a sense, resting, it was quiet, and then rose gloriously on the first day. You have a little bit of a new creation happening there where on the end of the sixth day, Jesus has made atonement for sins. He's inaugurated the new creation and then gives up his spirit to rest for the rest of the Sabbath that he might rise victorious in this new creation reality marked by the proclamation of his great work. Jesus rested on the seventh in the tomb completed his work on Friday, the sixth day. And so we see that the gift is given in Jesus. The fulfillment is realized in Jesus, right? So God, in Genesis 2, we see that God gives an example and a promise. Israel is to model that, to carry that on, to display that to the world in, as a distinctive of who they are, a memorial to who God is. Jesus then comes and clicks into that place shows that the Sabbath is a gift and that he himself is the fulfillment of that, which then brings us to you. And this is where we'll close our time here together. You, holistic rest is now offered to you for free. It's now offered to you for free. Listen to what Jesus says. I forget which one do I have. I have Mark up there, right? Matthew 11. Go to my next slide there. There we go. I'm trying to think which passage I put first. Okay, Hebrews. Look at what Hebrews says, Hebrews 4. Okay? So how, how do we relate to this? Here we go. Hebrews 4, 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it, like so many Israelites did, not realizing what was really offered in Sabbath rest. For the good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not 
they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest by Jesus, if you read the rest of Hebrews, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, the seventh day is still open and available. This Sabbath rest, this right relating to God is still available. You can enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today. Saying through David so long afterwards and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Entering the promised land wasn't the final rest. God had something better in Christ. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest through faith in Christ so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the Sabbath rest, a right and peaceful, contented relationship with God, the seventh day that was lost in the Garden of Eden, has been reclaimed. It's been remade. It's been redeemed by Jesus Christ himself. In his it is finished his rest, his resurrection, it now means that there's a new and better creation that is to come, that is in some ways already here through faith in Christ. Rest is available. It's offered, it's purchased, it's granted to all who would come and enter. And Jesus himself says this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. He says to this, listen to this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath is a person. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He describes his own heart here for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest, what? For your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the gracious invitation of Jesus. You and your sin lost the privilege of being in a right relationship with God. Jesus inaugurated a new creation and he himself now opens the door wide open to go, if that Garden of Eden rest sounds good to you, imagine until you get to the city of heaven kind of rest. And you can have it. You can have it. You can enter that rest. So the key t- two key takeaways for you is to come and enter. That's what Hebrews and Matthew are saying here. Come to Jesus. Enter the rest by trusting in Christ the disposition of your souls. Like, we're all looking for this. We see that so much now. Suicide rates are on the rise. Drug addiction is on the rise. Pornography addiction is on the rise. We are looking for escape and rest for our souls. We're looking for something to distract us, something. We, we know something's wrong in us and we're looking for a way out. We're looking for some sort of satisfaction or escape and we'll find it. We're looking for it everywhere. And what we're looking for is this Sabbath rest that only Jesus offers. Rest for our souls our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The great Augustine, back in the 400s, said this, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's Genesis 1. We were made for God. The seventh day was to show that we were made for God. And our hearts will always be restless. We will never find Sabbath rest inside or outside apart from a right relationship with Jesus. So we repent of our sin, the ways that we have tried to find rest ourselves. 
the things we've tried to identify with, like if I could just get that promotion, if we could just buy that boat, if we could just get this house project done, if we could just get the kids raised, then we would have rest. You won't. And you will, to the very last breath, be stressed and frustrated in your attempts to find what your soul longs for. And your life will be a waste apart from Christ. He is the one that you're longing for. God, having completed his work of rest, of creation, rests as if to say, this is the destiny of my people. To the rest as I rest, to rest in me. So now, I just want to give you a moment in silence to just pray. In the quietness of your own heart, think about the Sabbath rest that Jesus Christ is offering you now. Have you come and have you entered? One final point. So, should we as New Covenant believers celebrate the Sabbath religiously? There's basically been three views through Christian history. One is one that's held by the Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists, others, that we should observe a strict kind of Mosaic Sabbath on the seventh day. It seems like Colossians 2 and Romans 14 would say that that's not, we are not bound to have to do that seems like Paul and Jesus would disagree with that. So if you want to investigate that a little bit further, we were out of time to do that today. A second view held by many, like in particularly the Westminster Confession, a lot of Presbyterians and, and others who would say that the, the Sabbath now principally transfers to the Lord's Day, the first day of the week now because of how Christ is raised from the dead. We should now celebrate the Lord's Day and not a seventh day. And then there's a third view, which my guess would be the default setting here, is that this was completely fulfilled in Christ and we're free to do we're not bound by any sort of Sabbath principle at all. I, my humble advice, I want to be careful here because the scriptures tell us we should not make a binding command here because people's lives are different and it's not a mark of faithfulness to Christ one way or the other. However, my thoughts on this, just as we close, Jesus is the big point, so this is just a little addendum at the end just to give you some things to think about. I think that ignoring the creation principle of Sabbath rest is foolish and disobedient. So I think for us to just hand wave, Jesus fulfilled this, therefore I can pursue my idols, is to dishonor Jesus. And I think to resist our creatureliness. So while I don't think a strict Sabbath rule should be applied to everybody, I think that, to, that in some ways to think that rest should not still distinguish God's people, I think is foolish. So there's no law or command on you, but I think that you ought to pray thoughtfully about that that the sabbath rest is in creation not just an israelite thing but in creation so that means it's true for all people everywhere and my creatureliness if it was such a big deal down through the scriptures it's not that i'm bound by all those laws we want to be careful there but am i in some sense 
just justifying my idolatry by not embracing creaturely rest. That would be number one. Just think that through. Just because Jesus fulfilled it doesn't mean there isn't something to be learned and modeled there. Secondly, the Lord's Day is a big deal from day one. The resurrection happens on day one and there's proclamation. Pentecost comes on day one and it's the idea of first fruits and it's the spirit being poured out for the sake of proclamation. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says that they gathered together on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and he preached until midnight. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells them that when they gather on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week, they should take a collection, assuming that Christians gather on Sundays. Revelation 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So already the Lord's Day and the first day of the week, Sunday, were tied together as being a place where Christians gather and proclaim. This is why Christian churches through history have had often a morning and an evening service to indicate that the whole day is God's, not just an hour or hour and a half on Sunday morning. And it is to be dedicated to communal proclamation of God's word. That was ratified by Constantine and became kind of a permanent part of, of, of uh, Western culture. But I think we should pay attention there that our day, a creaturely rest should be a part of this and the Lord's Day Sunday should be set apart for corporate proclamation of God's word. Does that make sense? So I would just encourage you to think about that in your own hearts and minds, like just principally, what most, most embraces God's gift of rest, demonstrates the promise, shows me to be distinct from the rest of the world, gives me time to remember all those little points that I gave, remember, shows that it's fulfilled in Christ, and shows that I have entered, I have come and I've entered into that. If I were to look at my schedule, does my life reflect all of those pictures that are meant to do that. Can't make a rule on each other that it has to be Thursday or this or that, but it does seem like the Lord's Day Sunday is reserved for Christians not to just go to the lake if they want to, although that might be fine, but to go there is something set apart about that first day that I think we ought to think about without making a rule on each other and embrace creaturely rest in the way that I think God intends here. Okay? Could be a whole sermon on its own. But does my life reflect kingdom values? Does God get, does the church get my best labors? Do I make time in a biblical way for rest and remembrance and proclamation of God? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together and this massive theme throughout scripture over 160 times in the Bible that this is mentioned and dealt with. And so God, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to know where we should land on this. I pray that we should give a lot of grace for one another and that we should not forget that ultimately it's about Jesus. So God, those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, help us to really from our souls understand the rest that we have in him and to celebrate that. And God, help us to think strategically about our lives and our work to make sure that we are modeling to the world and to ourselves a healthy relationship with God. That we are not idolatrous, that we trust you in all things. And we don't just say that, we live like it. And we pray that other people would look at us and go, we just don't do the same calculations as the rest of the world. And God, I pray that people would see that as better. A relationship with Jesus is just simply better than living for myself. So God, help us to figure that out together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. 
For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.